Welcome to Great Ideas, a series about the ideas that have shaped the world we live in, created in association with Victoria University of Wellington. I'm Megan Whelan, and in this series we look at what it takes to change our perspective, consider why revolutionary ideas still matter, and what happens to us next. In this episode, we look at some of the most important revolutions in recent history, like the American Revolution, the Russian Revolution, and the French Revolutions. What triggered them, and why do they still matter? What lessons might we learn from hindsight, and what are the risks associated with rebellion? I am joined by a panel of experts who I've asked to tell me their favourite revolutionary idea. Hello, I'm Dolores Janievsky, and I teach U.S. History at Victoria University, And my uh, important revolutionary ideal is liberty, in part because it is as yet an unattainable ideal, but people have been pursuing it for at least 500 years. Hi, I'm Javier Marquez. I teach in the political science uh, program at Victoria University of Wellington. And um, my revolutionary idea is democracy, which has been, uh, over the last 200 years, the most important um, idea uh, leading us to... um, keep governments accountable. And I'm Simon Keller. I teach philosophy at Victoria University. And an idea that I think is revolutionary and that I've been thinking about is the idea of leisure. And I think it's revolutionary not because it's new, but because it forces us to think in a very different way about how we use our time and what the point of being here is. Once you've met your basic needs and you've done what everyone else is forcing you to do, well, what's left? What makes life worthwhile when you've got those things taken care of? So that is a very new idea, that the idea that we have, that forces us to think about what matters, why are we here? Is that what revolution is about? It is. I mean, I think in order to have a revolution, you need some kind of moral ideal to drive it. And that moral ideal might be uh, pretend. It may be that what drives the revolution is not really liberty or equality or justice or rights, but in fact something else. But you do need that kind of moral ideal. So the thought that somehow there's some better future waiting for you, if only you could get this government or this idea or this ideology or this class out of your way first. Dolores, that you've been teaching this year about um, those revolutions, the American Revolution, the Russian Revolution, is that what they were about? They they were attaining a, a new idea? Well, as Simon is saying, there are often uh, some certain principles that are enunciated, but then there's often a reality which is about power and to some extent uh, becoming top dog in a new society. So the founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, who wrote uh, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, was a slave owner and was in debt to the British And so some of his motivations were probably not about those (laughs) words, but about personal issues and about the fact that they resented having to defer to a power overseas. But they did put those ideas into their founding document, and those ideas did have consequences despite the fact that they may not have really been realized in that particular circumstance. Javier, you mentioned democracy as, as your idea. 200 years of, of democracy, I feel like it goes, it goes back longer than that, doesn't it? Well, um, yes, yeah, so there was obviously a, a much earlier moment of democracy. And in fact, uh, historians sometimes speak of a, a kind of the Greek or the Athenian revolution in terms of the, the revolutionary moment that introduced uh, uh, democracy in, in Greek times. But, you know, modern ideas of democracy owe less to the Greek um, times than to you know, the American, the French, and the, 
the modern revolutions of the last two centuries, which developed the system that we come to call democracy with its representative institutions and so on. Um, and also the many alternatives to that system that are, have also been called democracy, including the so-called people's democracies of the 20th century. So, Dolores, how do we actually define a revolution? What is a revolution? Well, it means in some sense uh, revolt, and it also means revolve. So it's about an overturning of an existing system and a creation of a new replacement and it can be, in some sense, subdivided between political revolutions, such as the American Revolution, but or social revolutions, which are about changing social arrangements, class, and so forth. Are they always violent? Um, no, because we can have sexual revolutions. We can have major transformations, industrial revolution. It depends, of course, on how you define violence, but it doesn't always cause war. And, in fact, uh, Martin Luther King received the Nobel Peace Prize for championing a peaceful transformation of power. And that's what the Nobel Prize Committee said when they gave him that award. Are they always – is the idea of, it, of revolution – Simon, you can maybe answer this – Is it does it have to be quick change? Um, look, I guess not by definition, but if you've got someone who's – considering themselves to be a revolutionary, then usually that doesn't just mean, you know, letting the arc of history take its course over thousands of years. No, I think um, it doesn't have to be quick change. It certainly has to be active change. I think if you consider yourself a revolutionary or leading a revolution, then you need to have the idea that somehow you're going to go out and make it happen. Uh, So the rhetoric of revolution always brings with it a kind of urgency and a call to arms, whether metaphorical or, or literal. Um, and certainly when we look back in history and we classify certain events as revolutions, even if it's something like the Industrial Revolution, not a political revolution. Which was not quick. Right. <laughs> no, but we are very keen to put boundaries on them, to say, you know, the English Revolution started at about this time and finished at about that time. Um, It does sound a little bit funny to say, you know, we are presently part of a revolution that has been going on for hundreds of years and will continue to do so. Are we presently part of a revolution? Um, I think people are going to look back on this time and say that we were part of a kind of technological revolution. And that is part of what I meant when I talked about the importance of thinking about leisure as a revolutionary idea now. Mm. I think we are... Not for the first time, but in a way that is uh, more kind of in our faces than has been in the past, facing a time when a lot of the things that we used to spend our time on, like just getting by, driving cars, driving trucks, getting the kids to school and so on and so on, um, a lot of those sorts of things are going to be taken over by technological uh, inventions. And we have to decide what we're going to do about that. Firstly, how the... uh, riches that that creates are going to be distributed. But secondly, what we're going to do with ourselves now. Javier, the other revolution, I guess, that's going on along with that idea of leisure time is the idea of um, mass communication and how that's worked. And we've seen how that's played out in in your sort of field of expertise around dictatorships and those kinds of governments. Do you think that's a revolution? Well, yeah, in some ways it is. Uh, um, 
sometimes its importance can be a little bit overstated now people sometimes think of i don't know they they spoke of a, the facebook revolution in egypt or the yep. twitter revolution and um, the arab uprisings and and that's probably a bit overstated it did play a role but it wasn't as direct or as or as clear as as perhaps it was originally thought but but it is accelerating the degree to which people can uh, communicate ideas through which um, people can coordinate uh, movements and so on, and also the degree to which we can be surveilled and um, um, controlled in other ways by um, you know large organizations and states in particular. So, so it's there is a there is a revolutionary. Um, element to these uh, technological uh, developments but at the same time it's um, as with many such developments uh, the ultimate implications are not always very clear um, the, you know the emergence of social media has probably encouraged people to revolt in some ways but it has also enabled um, certain forms of control that were impossible mm. um, before and, and a backlash against those revolts as well exactly. um, Dolores your research is, is it the I guess about American history. Do you think the founding fathers would look at what's happening in the United States as a um, culmination of that revolution or uh, a betrayal of it? Oh, well, I think most of the founding fathers would see it as a betrayal because they were not fans of democracy. In fact, that's what they set up the Constitution in order to restrain. That's part of the reason there's an electoral college, why the different elections are staggered. And only the House was directly elected in their period, and it was uh, based on property. Uh, Only those who had a certain amount of property could even vote. So uh, probably 4% of the people could actually participate, and that's who they saw as the elect. And they wouldn't really see Donald Trump as their heir apparent uh, without any doubt. So they would like him, but not the way he got there. No, they wouldn't like him. Oh, they wouldn't like him? No, he's too vulgar, uh, uneducated. They were quite elite. They had read Hobbes and all the rest of the political theorists, uh, and they were some of the best educated people in their society, such as Thomas Jefferson. And no, uh, they would not have approved, and they had hoped to restrain that kind of populism by the way they had set up. And they believed in virtuous leadership. And I don't think that he would meet their tests. You mentioned Hobbes. Um, Simon, you've uh, been teaching this year about the, the social contract. Can you explain what you mean by the social contract? Um, well, the idea of the social contract is that the government gains its legitimacy and its uh, right to push us around and tell us where to park and to throw us in jail if we break their laws and so on as a result of some kind of uh, yeah, contractual arrangement that we share either with each other or as individuals with the government. Now, that kind of contractual arrangement has been represented in all sorts of different ways. And in some ways, it's the term social contract that's most appealing rather than any particular idea that lies behind it. So it's, um, the, so it's, just, it's the idea that, that uh, we've made a probably tacit agreement with the government that they'll do stuff and we'll do stuff as well. <coughs> Yeah, exactly. Or perhaps with each other. And one way to see just how uh, radically different um, the sorts of different ideas that fall under the idea of the social contract can be is to see that there are many uh, famous um, defences of the social contract that seem to encourage revolution, like uh, Locke and Rousseau gave inspiration to revolutionaries. 
um, because the thought was, look, the government only holds its authority at our, uh, as, as we give it to them. So therefore, if the government's not acting on our behalf and it's not wielding our rights in the way that we think it ought to, then we have not just the right but the duty to rise up and overthrow it. But there is another strand in thinking about the social contract, which is represented probably um, in its earliest form in Plato and then certainly in Hobbes, which says, no, part of the idea of the social contract is that the government gives us protection and we give it obedience. So uh, so, uh, without the government, our lives are nasty, brutish and short. Exactly. And um, to overthrow the government would be kind of like killing your parent. Um, They might not be a very good parent. They might not be a very good government. But nevertheless, they gave you life and they gave you the possibility of um, becoming the person who you are and therefore um, it's utterly um, immoral to then try and overthrow it. Certainly uh, looking at a lot of the comments that are being written on the internet this year, post-Brexit, post post the US election, all these things are, why do we even have government? Right. And, you know, what what do they, what could they possibly do for me? Um, and I, I guess, I mean, that actually seems like a reasonable question. Why do we have government, Javier? I'm going to throw this one to you. Well, the usual social contract idea that, as Simon was just saying, or Hobbes would, would basically say, you know, the alternative is much worse. And, you know, without government, we are outside of, you know, the social relationships of trust and we can't trust each other. We end up in the famous war of all against all, right? And that's a, that's a classic justification uh, in the modern era for having government at all. Uh, of course, there is a, there's a long tradition uh, as well, you know, starting in the 19th century most obviously that, you know, questions that and says, you know, could we have something else? The revolutionary anarchists argued that, um, you know, we could eventually get rid of government in the sense of a coercive institution that uh, tells us to do uh, or not to do certain things and, and replace it with voluntary arrangements in which we come together uh, without the need for coercion, you know, and um, all those revolutionary uh, it's a, it's a long revolutionary tradition in the 19th century and you know, well into the 21st century of anarchists who say we, there, are, there, are, there is a different way of doing things and eventually government could be, um, it would either wither away or it could be overthrown in one last revolutionary upheaval. So. This comes back to some of the stuff you've talked about, Simon, is the idea that uh, what happens after a revolution, and I mean, that's always an interesting question, what, what comes next? We, it's, it's all very well and good to be the active revolutionary and say things happen, but someone then has to do what comes next. So what does come next? Right. Well, certainly if we're talking about revolutions as uh, potentially violent overthrowings of the state by the people, one of the lessons of history is that revolutions are completely unpredictable. And if you look at the way that a country is, you know, four or five decades after a revolution, pretty much always it's completely different from what the revolutionaries envisaged when they um, took on their revolution. And in some ways that's, I mean, not surprising. Um, Revolution usually involves getting into a state of war that is a state in which there's no established authority and in which people feel as though they are able to act in ways for which they're not going to be held accountable. Um, And that just leads to chaos and to people wanting some kind of authority to take over, any kind of authority, and that could lead you anywhere. Um, So one of the questions that I think you have to ask when you're thinking about the morality of 
beginning or taking part in a revolution is the question, how sure are you that this revolution is throwing over a seriously unjust or um, otherwise horrible state? Um, Are you sure enough to take the risk that what follows the revolution is actually going to be something worse? Or something better. Yeah, or, or, or something better. But but certainly, I mean, Stalin was not what the Bolsheviks envisaged in when they started off their revolution. I think the French revolutionaries would, be, would have been astonished to have seen what came in the decades afterwards. And uh, I think it's all very well to say that a revolution was carried out for certain noble ideals. But if you're going to put people at risk, if you're going to put the country or a part of the country into a situation in which there's no established authority and in which human nature in its very worst manifestations is allowed to run riot, then you take a risk and you have to be held accountable for it. Um, I think people deserve to be morally judged, not just on their intentions, but on what actually follows from, from their acts. This applies, by the way, to going to war, um, to any kind of uh, act that involves taking away the sense of um, rule of law or authority or accountability for people's actions. Dolores, are people usually held accountable? It depends on who are the winners in particular circumstances, and the winners usually may be able to make the rules. Uh, After World War II, the winners decided who should be punished for war crimes, but such nations as the United States avoids being held accountable for its atrocities and won't even participate in the International Criminal Court now. Mm. So um, accountability is related to power and who decides is an ongoing kind of question. Who can be trusted? Who is given that power to make those kinds of judgments? And we haven't reached the end of that particular set of questions or answers. What about overthrowing a dictatorship? That seems like it should always be a moral good. Well, it depends. I mean, you have something like the Syrian uh, revolt, right? So you have started out with peaceful protests, you know, some very creative. Some of my favorite stories from the the beginnings of the Syrian revolt are people doing amazingly uh, creative and courageous things in nonviolent ways. And it suddenly, um, it all goes to hell. It's, you know, literally, literally, hell. Yeah. literally goes to the Hobbesian uh, uh, war of all against all. And you have a situation in which um, it will probably end up with the regime uh, regaining uh, power over, the, uh, over most of the Syrian territory, perhaps not all of it. Um, millions of refugees and um, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, uh, of dead. Um, so, so it's always a question here. Um, many of the great revolutions um, in history, especially in the 20th century, the, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, were accompanied by massive um, you know, violence, some of the, uh, not only during the process of taking power um, over um, admittedly oppressive uh, regimes, but also afterwards in the process of social transformation. Mm. So those are real, uh, genuine questions. Was it worth it uh, for the communists to take over in Russia? Was it worth it for the uh, Chinese revolution? And um, as Deng Xiaoping is supposed to have said, you know, perhaps it's always too early to tell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was an answer to the French Revolution. It's too early to tell, said he. I I think it was Zhou Enlai. It might might have been an apocryphal quote. I'm not entirely sure that he actually did say that. Oh, um, well, I would look at the American Civil War as a revolution, a social revolution, 
and uh, did end in the emancipation of slaves, though obviously it didn't solve the ongoing issue of race in the United States. So it did achieve certain kinds of goals, and but those could be negated in the uh, subsequent era. And it's still a sort of an ongoing kind of question about whether or not there will ever be racial equality or we're entering a post-racial era. So it can have steps forward and steps backwards, or as Javier said, chaos can descend. And the Syrian is a very interesting case, or brutality and dictatorship as occurred after the French Revolution, after the Russian Revolution, after the Chinese Revolution. And those are consequences, though, of, in some sense, unpredictable. So it's hard to have people answer this particular question, can you be held responsible for the consequences? If you do not know what those might be, right. uh, uh, intention is part of the criminal law. Does this <laughs> yeah. uh, is guilt also a consequence or not? But let history be the judge, as Fidel Castro said. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a sense in which we take our own moral records into our hands every day. Um, we all make little mistakes when we're driving, for example, uh, which could. Mm turn us into murderers, which could leave us in court for negligent driving and could leave us living a life of having killed somebody. You know, if you don't look in the morning because you're in a rush when you're backing out of your driveway, probably nothing will happen, but maybe the worst possible thing will happen. So the idea of moral luck or moral risk is a big part of our lives anyway, but it's well and truly accentuated when the risk that you're taking is one that involves uh, over or attempting to overthrow a regime, entering a situation of chaos, and then just hoping for the best afterwards. It's not that there's any special formula that could allow you to know, if only you put enough time into it, whether this particular revolution will work out. You just have to accept, maybe I'm going to turn out to be a glorious revolutionary who ushers in a new era of freedom. Or perhaps I'm going to be someone who leads a whole lot of idealistic, innocent people to their graves, and that's the end of the story. I'm sure Facebook has an algorithm somewhere that could that could work that out for <laughs> us. <laughs> it's, it's the 21st century. Right. <laughs> uh, I do not believe that Zuckerberg is a really great, profound political political philosopher, and that we can follow him. One of the interesting things about Facebook, I was going to say before, though, is the way that it's also changed the uh, our conception of what it means to participate in a revolution. So suddenly mm. you can feel like a revolution, or you feel like you're part of the revolution because you're liking people's posts from. Um, you know, from Standing Rock Reservation or wherever else. Um, and uh, and that, for better or worse, it, yeah. can, it, can, it makes revolutions more kind of uh, open to participation. Well, one, one of the things uh, um, social media has done um, in some or has enabled is it's not so much that liking people's posts but mobilizing emotion. So if mm-hmm. you look at, um, say, the Egyptian uprisings in 2011, um, you know, the, one of the reasons that it was called the Facebook Revolution is not so much because the various social movements organized on Facebook. That wasn't really practicable in the end because, you know, if if I can read the post, the government can read the post. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> they know where you're going. Yeah. Um, but they can mobilize emotion. So they, you know, large communities of people suddenly uh, were able to say um, – mobilize outrage over police brutality in Egypt. And that, and that was a new development, that people could use this new media to um, 
form common causes, mm. join in, um, not so much and say, you know, we're going to protest at this or that place or we're going to do this or that uh, thing, but in, you know, generating the, the kinds of, of, of um, commitments that break the, what you know, people sometimes call the barrier of fear because mm. it, you know, it's risky to, to revolt. And so people need to be brought to that point where they can say, okay, um, you know, here I stand. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And we can see that actually, um, Dolores, in, um, in, in the U.S., following on from what you said about the American Civil War and the Black Lives Matter movement, which entirely sprung out of social media, that, that idea that that, that um, racial dispute in the U.S. just has not finished. Yes, I mean, it's an ongoing conflict and, and social media is one means of that kind of communication. On the other hand, social media is also being used to mobilize the alt-right, the neo-Nazis and uh, groups that are opposed to uh, Black Lives Matter. So it's not always on the side of equality, mm. if that's one of our principles. It can be on the side of inequality. And it can also overthrow standards such as reason uh, that journalism used to prize. Uh, and does. the spread <laughs> of false news um, is another kind of consequence that there are uh, no... It removes the editor and people who are fact-checking and so forth. So uh, it can be used in all kinds of different ways, as other forms of communication have certainly been. The rhetoric can be used to enunciate great ideas, <laughs> and it can also be demagoguery. Mm. And those words, of course, go back to Greece. Uh, and they suggest that there are ways of doing these things when just the voice. It can be the radio. It can be television. It can be social media. So in some sense, these means of communication aren't the only thing. It's what's being communicated, mm. these set of ideas and what, what they inspire in terms of action. Yeah. And do they inspire equality or do, are they about reimposing hierarchy? which is the other side of the uh, equality paradigm. I always think of uh, of social media as a town hall or, in fact, a town square. And so you have in one corner, you know, people raving about equality and you have in the other corner the people standing on a soapbox raving about the alt-right or whatever you like. I quite like the idea that, the, you know, the French revolutionaries would have had a Facebook group. <laughs> we all just liked. Well, there were a number of different uh, French revolutionaries. They would have yes. several competing <laughs> Facebook groups. If the idea of a revolution is to make change is uh, is it always immediate fast change or are, are all these revolutions incremental change that eventually will get the human race to a nice place the star trek utopia oh, i don't think there's any guarantee of that at all um and i think the story of revolutions often is a story of uh human nature reasserting itself in all of its uh you know, with all of its positive and all of its negative sides eventually. Um, you know, I certainly don't see an arc of history that involves a series of revolutions that are gradually taking us towards a, I don't know, more peaceful, democratic, equal um, time. Now, that's not to say that there's any guarantee that things are going to get worse either. I just think the human uh, experience is varied and fragile and uh, we have all kinds of possibilities open to us, and which ones of them are going to be actualised is largely a matter of, of 
chance. You know, it's just chaos. We can all do our best to try and nudge things in a direction that we think is positive when we have the chance. But yeah, I think there are. I mean, look, on the whole, I think I'd probably rather be alive at this time than most times in history. And that's even taking the chance of being dropped into a war zone or somewhere like that. But I don't see that as anything that indicates that things are, on the whole, getting better rather than worse through some kind of historical inevitability. I mean, yeah. So, no, I think one of the kind of uh, frightening things about revolution is that for all the best of, best of intentions that we may go into a revolution with, this is whether it's an industrial revolution, a technological revolution, a political revolution, a class revolution, um, yeah, you just never really know what's going to come of it because... Uh, Humanity and the environment that we interact with is just so deeply chaotic and unpredictable. That is very bleak. (laughs) Well, I mean, for better or worse. Um, So it's also the case that sometimes things happen in history that seem utterly horrible and yet looking back they usher in, um, you know, a better state of affairs. And uh, if I can be optimistic, I think the truth is that with the election of Trump and uh, with Britain leaving the EU and so on, um, there are lots of reasons to be pessimistic, um, and are there good reasons? But it's also worth thinking in the back of your head, actually, we haven't got much of a clue what's going to happen and what kind of historical forces are going to come together to produce what. Does that ring true for you, Dolores? Well, historians always are backward-looking people, so we know in some sense uh, where things went to, which is why we feel safer. We don't like to deal with prophecy or the present. We like at least 50 years or something longer so we can get that kind of rear-view mirror vision. Um, And I think he, um, Simon, is a bit pessimistic um, and uh, issue about whether or not we'd be alive today rather than the past. Certainly for a woman, uh, it's better to be alive now and in this particular kind of society than it would have been any place, anywhere, in any past uh, that we can talk about. Uh, Childbirth... Uh, having a chance of dying every fifth pregnancy was a very common kind of situation. It's only now, relatively recently, that women have out, begun to outlive men uh, because of uh, modern medicine, among other things. And I think that would be a knowledge revolution is another important one. And I think we have accumulated more knowledge simply because we are now and we can look and, and gather information from all of the past before us. So in that, I'd say positive. Uh, gender equality, sexual equality are now, in some sense, commonplace. And I was there when we invented words like sexism back in the 1960s, and it started being, and most of the contemporary students don't know that, oh, you invented those words. <laughs> Racism comes into English in the 1930s because we needed a critical term to use. And it got invented. Genocide got invented in 1944 for another reason. Uh, so knowledge and the invention of language to describe various forms of oppression is one of the aspects of the contemporary age that I think we should be very proud and pleased about and more people being able to have time to think, uh, which is maybe the other side of Simon's leisure. Um, But I think thinking is a very enjoyable activity (laughs) and more of us are able to do that if we're not obsessed with our screens. 
I'm going to ask. I'm going to throw the same question to you. Um, is you are you as bleak, Javier, as Simon is? Um, well, I mean, I, I agree that revolution is unpredictable. It has often led in directions that nobody, you know, cared for in, at the very beginning of the process. But, but if you look back over, you know, the last 200 years, I chose the, the idea of democracy as, as the idea. You know, 200 years ago, nobody thought that democracy made any sense. Um, it was just not a thing that uh, people wanted. The idea of, well, of us being equal citizens and the government being accountable to us was uh, very incipient in a few places around the world. Uh, nobody voted in or out uh, governments. Um, 200 years later, pretty much every country in the world pays lip service to this idea. Um, you know, it's lip service. It's not always very um, real. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, uh, different societies don't quite uh, live up to the ideals that they profess, but but it's there, right? It exerts a kind of pressure uh, in ways that were unexpected before. And I think it's probably a positive, despite the fact that it hasn't, the path there hasn't always been uh, very straight and there's no guarantee that it will continue in that direction um, forever, you know, certainly. Um, I'm, are we still in then? Are we still in the middle of that revolu- of the democratic revolution? Um, in a sense, we are. I think. Um, I mean, if you if you look at the Arab uprisings of the, the last few years, you know that's another movement in this process. You know, these are um, states that, uh, even though their societies, like most other societies around the world, paid lip service to the ideals of democracy, it hadn't been. Um, a real, uh, genuine commitment and people um, push for, not just for democracy, but for many other things, but among them for the idea that uh, government should be accountable, citizens should be equal, um, you know, people should have a voice, and so on and so forth. And that's kind of a, you know, this this endless process in which these ideals catalyze for their action. And sometimes it leads to tragedy. If you, if you look back at something like the Russian Revolution, um, Sometimes people say, well, you know, it all went bad because of Stalin. But, you know, Stalin was just one part of a very large um, commitment on, you know, large numbers of people who Mm -hmm. believed in certain ideals of equality, of democracy, and so on, in different ways than we do, and tried to build a new society uh, on the basis of those ideals. And it didn't quite succeed in the way they expected, but it was part of the same sort of push in which these ideas catalyzed for their action. Has there ever been one that has succeeded in the way that the revolutionaries expected? That's a hard question. Well, uh, I think you can say that some some revolts succeed quickly. Um, it's easy to overthrow a dictator sometimes. You know, if you look at Ceausescu uh, in Romania, you know, four days in 1989, a uh, hated dictator is gone. But the, the process of building... What comes afterwards is often much harder than that. Um, and that's so, depending on how you define success, uh, you're going to get, yeah, it, it's sometimes very easy to change certain things, it's sometimes very hard to change other, other things. And I guess the English Revolution would be another relatively good example of it working out the way they thought it would. Well, um, <laughs> Dolores will know more about the English Revolution than I will, but. Um, the English Revolution had so many different strands in it and I think that there were some who envisaged uh, a strong, 
dictator of the people. There were others, definitely, who thought that the monarchy would be overthrown and there'd be, there'd be none left. There were others who thought that the uh, proper outcome of the revolution would be a restoration of the throne with full uh, executive power associated with it. So, as Dolores said, often it's the winners who write history, mm-hmm. so it depends which predictions we choose to focus on, mm-hmm. whether we think that the revolution worked out as predicted. And look, surely if there's one thing that the Trump election taught us, it's that even when we have the most amazing powers of analysis at our disposal, we're not very good at predicting the future. And uh, I do worry about any kind of sense of inevitability that is often a kind of moral inevitability, which often arises as an inspiration for a kind of revolution, especially those that are broadly Marxist in tone. Mm -hmm. And... uh, There are clear changes in the world that we're seeing. We are gaining more knowledge and technology is progressing at an astounding rate. But knowledge and technology can be used in all sorts of different ways. And uh, I don't... Yeah, well, I sort of take the point that things are improving in many, many ways. And as Dolores said, um, lots of reasons to prefer to be alive now than to be alive in the past. (laughs) I do have the sense that it's a bit more precarious than we might like to think. So if it is that precarious and if, you know... All of a sudden, the world is the the entire world is won by one run by one dictator, which certainly people were predicting prior to the eighth of November. Um, is do we have a moral obligation as human beings to fight against that? To fight against it, in one sense, we have a moral obligation to resist. Um, I think we have a a moral obligation to continue to think and to consider alternative possibilities and never to sort of give in to the thought that because things have worked out a certain way, they had to work out that way or even that that's the right way for them to work out. Or even that if if it worked out for you, it's worked out for everyone else. Exactly. So we have a strong obligation to put ourselves into other people's positions and to understand that a system that might work well for me might nevertheless be deeply unjust. Um, As for whether we have an obligation to fight, it depends a lot on what you mean by fight. Um, I think that we can move too quickly to the thought, this is an unjust state of affairs, therefore we need to overthrow it, even if that means taking up arms. Um, And I guess one of the lessons that I draw from various kinds of wars, but especially from revolutionary wars, is that it's that kind of act, the act of moving a state into a state of violence that often leads to, um, yeah, events that make the whole thing not really worth it or that usher in a worse state of affairs afterwards. I was reading recently, there's a philosopher called David Lyons in America who's a terrific philosopher, but um, he gained an enormous amount of controversy when he uh, gave a presentation at the American Philosophical Association arguing that the American Revolution was an unjust war. And he had various arguments often to do with the motives of the revolutionaries. But, but one of his most striking ones was that he'd gathered data on just how many sexual assaults and petty murders and so on had taken place when America was, however briefly, thrown into a situation of war. So I guess I'm very squeamish about violence. Mm-hmm. Javier, assuming that revolutions are, or being a revolutionary involves more than hitting like on Facebook, do you think we have a moral obligation? Um, well, I mean, as Simon was saying, there's 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 always a, a question about whether what that moral obligation entails. Um, um, and one one thing that political scientists have started to investigate recently is what 
you know, the, about the, the actual the sheer effectiveness of nonviolent versus violent tactics. And one thing that 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 seems to emerge from from this research is that a lot of times nonviolence is a lot more effective than violence. So, um, so if what we mean by moral obligation is resistance to certain states of affair. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean we have an obligation to take out arms, although uh, sometimes what people have to do in order to make nonviolence resistance effective uh, requires a lot of courage. It's not uh, simply a matter of uh, liking Facebook posts, but you know, putting yourself on the line um, and potentially suffering police violence and so on. Um, now, it doesn't mean that that's going to work. Um, yeah. And that's, again, you know, part of the, the whole unpredictability thing. Um, um, it also doesn't mean that uh, resistance and the kind of revolutionary, the, the, the image that we have of a revolution of going out into the streets is, is always the right thing to do. It may not be for many states of affairs. Um, but um, it's, all, it's also, a, a, um, if you think you are living in a, in a, in a context that calls for resistance, you're you know, under an oppressive uh, government, uh, engages in um, brutality of various sorts and so on, you know, perhaps uh, certain forms of resistance are required and some of them uh, may be quite effective w- even without um, passing over into uh, violent uh, resistance. I'm going to give the last word to you, Dolores. Is, it, is there such a thing anymore in, in the 21st century of the, the, the glorious revolutionary? Do we, do we, is, are there still people out there like that? Well, it depends, again, on what you mean by revolutionary, but I've just been teaching on human rights and historic wrongs and looking at the people who framed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and also reflecting on my own mother. We were in a segregated town in the South, and my mother helped to uh, integrate the school. She was a teacher, and one of her first revolutionary acts, and she would come home and tell us when she'd done something, she called the black principal Mr., which was against the Southern rules of etiquette. And she created a stir, and she was very proud of herself for having upset other people by a white woman calling a black man Mr. with the title of respect. And she made sure that black teachers didn't lose their jobs when integration happened. Uh, We worked with black students. uh, Even though the Klux Klan threatened to bomb the high school, we uh, So we were using nonviolent methods of resistance and moral courage. And she was uh, wrote letters to me, and I never realized how courageous she really was. But one of the day letters she wrote to me when I was at university was that she was driving down the, our, our street and the Coast Klan was having a meeting in a local restaurant, and you could tell it was the Klan because the guy in white sheets was being parking the cars, and she was driving by. She never told me why she was driving by. But she had black children in the car because she didn't want them to have to walk by the Klan. Uh, and she never told me that's what she was doing or why she was driving. And it's only recently that my sister told me that was the circumstance. So she was someone who was courageous but didn't necessarily toot her own horn and did what was necessary to protect other people from violence or intimidation or threat. And she was respected for whatever uh, odd reason in my town uh, as a good teacher 
even she had three classes of Latin scholars, even though this was a this is the town that's called number one redneck town on Florida because it has the most gun shops per capita. Nevertheless, a moral courage sometimes inspires people with respect, even if they don't necessarily agree with your stance that you're taking. So and we, she we was kind of a quiet hero that um, doesn't get, you know, a monument or anything. But nevertheless, she was my model of moral courage that I was growing up with who believed in educating people about inequality and about oppression. And she knew a lot of respect for our local Indian peoples, on the Hispanic farm workers, the black domestics. She taught us all about that particular problem. And that's, of course, what inspired me to become an American historian to teach about those issues. So courage is possible. Change is possible. It doesn't always go straightforwardly. And it can step backwards, but nevertheless, people can make a difference is something that we've learned, and Martin Luther King is an example of that kind of more better known than my mother, but nevertheless, they were part of the same historical struggle. That's a perfect ending. Great Ideas was made in association with Victoria University of Wellington. It was engineered by Phil Benge with production assistance from Adam McCauley and our executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can find other episodes and more of RNZ's podcast at rnz.co.nz.